Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what would be the cultural impact of increased longevity? So the goal of extending lifespans and on the more extreme end, maybe even defeating death and creating indefinite lifespans, well, it's long been an aim of humans, I suppose, if you go back to uh, We've been trying not yes. to die since we figured out we were likely <laughs> to die. Yeah, it's a pretty universal desire, and it's been mythologized a lot. But uh, in more recent times, it's uh, one of the major goals of the transhumanist uh, movement. And it has a couple major cheerleaders that are out there today. Uh, one of the most well-known is a guy named Aubrey de Grey. Yes. And he's really push, trying to push forward anti-aging research, and he came up with this idea... Of, it has the acronym SENS, or Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. I won't go into all the details of his plan. You can look it up. But he's just trying to identify a roadmap uh, more than doing the science himself. But he's identified seven types of cellular damage that appear to be causing aging. Again, actually understanding aging is something we're still, I think, trying to figure out. But right. again, I think this idea that you know aging is a disease and why don't we tackle that head on seems like a logical step uh, to take once we think it's within sight of our technology. And again, Aubrey de Grey is not the only high-profile person that's talking about this. Right. Mostly he's been pushing, I think, to get science funding for projects that yes. look into... So he's literally a cheerleader um, in that sense. That he's, he's, he's literally trying to money. raise money that can then be spent on finding out what the mechanisms of aging are and combating them, which he thinks is you know practical to start on now as a project, which is a little bit outside the scientific mainstream. Most people seem to think we need to learn more about aging before we can practically combat it. But of course, recently, you know, Google getting behind this idea yeah. and that big Time magazine coverage was a big step forward, at least in terms yeah. of public relations for this project. Uh, this is something obviously Ray Kurzweil has been talking about for a long time. But yeah, he's another major cheerleader for uh, defeating death, really, for yes. taking the, the, the most extreme view of this. And the fact that he's now embedded at Google and that they have a, a sort of subsidiary company that's looking into long-term health solutions shows that there are at least some people who have access to capital who think that this is worth looking into now uh, and not waiting. Another high-profile person is Peter Thiel, who's in favor of defeating death. He actually wrote the foreword for a book by Sonia Arison that is, as far as I know, is the best nonfiction treatment available on this topic of not necessarily defeating death completely, but at least extended lifespans. And it's called 100 Plus, and it's right. by a woman named Sonia Arison. She writes this book from the perspective of what will happen to society as people start to uh, live longer lives, and not just more years, but actually more healthy years. Because that's something that's, I think, a, a qualitative change from what we have been experiencing lately. I mean, lifespans have been going up even over the last 10 years, but we've seen mostly lifespans going up at the very end when quality of life is not that good, what the expectation is here is that uh, we'll start to see some of those middle years where the quality of life is still high get extended. Right, which kind of leads into the next thing, which is I want to talk about some of the the oppositions, or at least knee-jerk oppositions to this idea. Because it's to me, my first thought is, well, why do we need these cheerleaders in the first place when clearly death is... I, well, I, I personally believe it to this be sort of a like horrible thing. This seems like a clear thing. goal for Aging, humanity least, yeah. to put a lot of its effort into is solving the horrible, tragic problem that we're all, we're all going to die. Yes, and, and yet we have, you know, still kind of fringe, uh, more extremist, you know, yeah, thinkers that are Yeah, this is still like a radical um, 
point of view, I think certainly in the academic world and uh, slightly less so maybe in the corporate world now. And it's, you know, it's not that big a mystery, I think, why people don't necessarily take this seriously on the surface. I mean, we have such ingrained rationalizations about death. We kind of have to because we're still stuck with it. And Human history has been dominated by this um, terrible, tragic reality. And so we have culturally really invented some wonderful stories and attitudes that help us get okay with death. And I would argue that on a small scale, you know, people structure their whole life around the idea that it's sort of a march towards death. I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the knowledge of our limits, I think, is a big, big part in our structuring and planning of our lives and our decision making. Yeah. When we, you know, decide to have children or get married or pursue a career, you know, it's behind every aphorism or cliche you hear, like right up to YOLO. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, it's everywhere. It's, we've, and when you have your entire life and point of view built around a concept, uh, then to come along and say, well, maybe we could actually defeat that. It's, it's, I think it it's creates some huge. cognitive issues yeah, for it's, people. It's kind of huge to comprehend. Myself it, included. I yeah. Mean, no, the first time you think about something is you just shut down. You go, oh, that can't happen. That's your first, that's everybody's first response, I think. And, you know, to be fair, it's still completely technically infeasible and has been. Uh, but I think, you know, it, there's no reason why it's, fundamentally impossible, I think. Well, there's a good evidence in nature that it is possible, right? Because there's a lot of life forms that don't die. I mean, you see a really we, wide we range do. of lifespans in nature, or down to a few days and then up to, you know, centuries. So, right. And then you have uh, organisms that can regenerate entire limbs. I mean, I'm not well-versed in all that research, but again, if you just view the human body as a material object, uh, a very complicated one, and you don't have any sort of dualist uh, ideas about a, a spiritual life force or something, mm -hmm. then in principle, there's no reason why you can't just engineer that system. Right, uh, just basically to keep trick going. the body into being young forever. No one's saying it's easy, but. No, of course it's not easy. It hasn't been done, but it does seem within the realm of possibility given what uh, can be done with uh, life forms that we know about. Another th problem that people will often bring up if you talk to them about defeating death they'll go to that Malthusian place and they'll say, well, we'll have horrible overcrowding. Sure. And uh, I, I don't find that to be that feasible, largely because, uh, well, that's a complaint that they constantly have about any new technology that's going to make it easier to live and make more people. And we've literally <laughs> never experienced it. Well, also it. my attitude is, well, and, oh, and honestly, this might be overcrowding like on a scale that's beyond what we've seen before, I guess, if nobody was dying. But I, I feel like we'll sort that out. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, as uh, people have lived longer and had less tragic death in their life in the Western world, we've seen fertility rates go down. And you might see that happen even more. You might, if you, people are living for a lot longer years and they're young biologically in that time, they might wait uh, a century to have kids or not have them at all. Yeah, society, I, I imagine, will be able to adapt. And if that means finding some way to have less kids, not necessarily in a heavy-handed approach like they took in China, but... Right, well, I mean, not to say that's impossible, but it hardly seems like the only way to approach yeah. the problem. I think mostly it seems that societies adjust themselves to have their child-rearing be whatever is sort of comfortable for people. And if yeah, people I feel can culturally it would happen. The kids, then they'll have them. And if they can't, then they, they won't. And I think if we do get to a point where we're actually crowding out our basic capabilities like water and uh, space, then uh, we'll engineer solutions to that too. We still have a lot of room to build up 
And we still have a lot of uh, empty space in the world that could be used a lot more efficiently than it's being used now. So, yes. And in a world where we could defeat death, we would have such control over biology uh, that would probably have a positive impact, say, on our ability to generate food and, and other things right. that would also we might be able sort to of solve this problem. Higher efficiency people that don't need as much food. We might be able to uh, also create more food by engineering the food itself. Yeah, that was more the second thing was what I was thinking, but the first right. one's interesting too. Right. And then another question that people will ask if you talk about defeating death is like, won't people just become bored? Oh, I wouldn't want to live for, you know, 150 years. And also, you know, you kind of addressed this earlier, Ted, but the idea that, you know, those last 50 years, they don't even want to be alive for because they're, again, imagining them the way that they are today, where well, you're right. in an old folks' home and you, right. someone has to feed you and right. if your you're bones like, hurt. You and, know, uh, yeah, if you're stuck in a painful, uh, semi-functional body uh, with minimal dignity, I think obviously nobody wants that for 50 years. But what we're talking about happening wouldn't be that uh, if, if these things work the way that uh, people like Aubrey de Grey suggest. They would instead be... Uh, more like a young or middle-aged body that you'd be able to live in for longer. So will people become bored? Some people will become bored. Some people become bored now. But I don't anticipate personally becoming bored because I think there's just already so many experiences that you can have in this world. And if you imagine a world where lots of people are living a lot longer, there's even more experiences you could come up with. Yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine running out of things to do. But it's important to remember that this is not going to be forced on people. I mean, I would not suggest that we prevent people from dying either naturally or by their own hand if uh, if they choose to do that. Suicide that would should be an, be an option. option, and it should be allowed. And uh, I don't although it isn't technically allowed in it isn't right currently now, allowed which is now. Weird. Uh, for reasons that I think are moralistic and historical and don't make a whole lot of sense. Although, does that stop many people? Uh, I think it does in the sense that um, stops relatives from you know it's sto- it stops uh, it, it stops people from being able to get the easiest suicide sure. drugs which are barbiturates sure um, and people who are suicide advocates usually point to barbiturate prohibition as being a sort of the big issue for suicide if you want to technically say it's illegal or if you want to have it be like an insurance thing you know where you can't off yourself for money or whatever uh, most people are sort of like, well, that's moralizing, but it is what it is. But uh, if you can't get safe and painless methods of suicide, either you don't commit suicide and you're miserable, or you uh, do commit suicide and uh, and you do it in a painful or, or unsuccessful way. Well, and one would think that in, in this world that we're imagining of increased longevity, that one would really want to have a right to die protected. Yeah, well, the idea of being forcibly kept alive by medicine forever is really frightening. And I doubt what would happen because I would think that even, I would assume that there would be some cost to ongoing longevity treatments and that it wouldn't be free to provide this to everyone, at least not at first. So I would think that no one would be inclined to pay all that money to force people to take it. But um, I, I certainly think this should be a, uh, a choice that people make. I would choose to take the longevity treatments and live as long as possible, personally. Well, and another potential cure to boredom, other than just suicide that's less extreme, Mm -hmm. uh, would be, say, intentionally erasing some of your memories, which that's far-fetched, but no more far-fetched than extending your lifespan. Well, this is actually, currently we forget things already, and we might 
be able to, like you're talking about, enhance our ability to forget things, perhaps through drugs or some other method. You might just wipe the slate you, just to like you might uh, forget things on purpose. Experience things again. Right. I mean, you know. Right. Trying to figure out uh, how our brain forgets things and what that mechanism is and how we can use that to our benefit is almost certainly going to be a part of long-term longevity research, I think. Because uh, if well, memory problems are a huge part of uh, the aging issues that correct. we face right now. If correct. you want to look at Alzheimer's and other things, if that, you live long enough, yeah. you're almost guaranteed to get some form of dementia, either uh, Alzheimer's or another form. That's something that we'll have to combat if people are going to live good lives uh, past a hundred. You know, who knows what we'll discover in, in looking into that? But one thing we might discover is how to safely erase or diminish existing memories, which uh, is cool. Could get to that eternal sunshine place. But anyways, uh, for those of us who'd like to defeat death, is this something that we actually could expect in our lifetime or maybe for the generation after us? Right. Um, And some people think so. I mean, this is, again, in that fuzzy area of predicting the future where nobody knows for sure how this stuff, how hard it really is. But uh, one of the arguments that's put forth by Aubrey de Grey, who I mentioned earlier, is what's called longevity escape velocity. Right. And this is the notion that throughout human history, we have increased lifespans and you can chart those increases. Now, uh, some of those increases are just, you know, defeating infant mortality rates, but you know, you can chart that we gain some fraction of a year to human lifespan each year. And so if those numbers continue to increase, you might imagine we get to a point where we're adding a whole year to lifespans every year on average. And that's when you reach so-called escape velocity where uh, anybody alive or young enough during that time period when that threshold is crossed uh, could potentially live indefinitely. Well, his yeah, the way that that argument works is that once we get to a point where we're adding a year per year, uh, then even though there are probably major breakthroughs that have to be made in between there and actually uh, defeating death, that year-over-year uh, increase will be enough to keep you alive while those... Um, while that research is done. Right, because you just have to buy time for the next medical advance to happen. Exactly. Which is kind of the way that Kurzweil also frames it. And he wrote a book uh, along with a, a doctor uh, named Terry Grossman. Uh, he wrote, they wrote a couple books, but I think their more yeah. recent one is called Transcend. That's actually a guide on how to live forever. If you're alive now, how you can start by you know, basically practicing the best known uh, sort of diet and exercise and de-stressing techniques that we're aware of, trying to use that to weather the storm for right. another set of years until other technologies come out. Yeah, they, they did some research into some high longevity cultures like Okinawans and uh, sure. and uh, uh, Italians, uh, were those, those Italian islands. Um, and they decided that uh, with some, you know, combination of best practices in exercise and nutrition and uh and some slightly esoteric like homeopathic medicine ideas you can hang on uh, long you enough. can hang on long enough and they're, they're specifically aiming this at boomers they feel that some boomers will break through well that's because they're boomers but that is because they're boomers we think yeah. <laughs> it honestly seems a little far-fetched the best estimates of this seem like they're 20 30 years away for the big breakthroughs right Seems like uh, it's going to be too late for boomers who are already in their 60s. Well, someone like Kurzweil really is in a race uh, with death if, those, if that estimate if is that correct. If that estimate is correct, yeah. If his own estimate is correct, then he's, he's coming right down to the wire. Um, but anyways, I mean, I would make the point that's a little bit softer than that. You know, I don't know that this longevity escape velocity really tracks or that the type of wild accelerating progress that Kurzweil 
predicts is going to happen. Although I, I do generally believe that technology is accelerating its progress, but I, I would just point to recent history. It hasn't been that long since we figured out some really basic yeah, things. One thing that we really forget, I think is how far medicine has come very recently. I, I just did a basic research into some dates and, you know, the germ theory of disease was sort of experimentally confirmed by, you know, Louis Pasteur in like the 1860s. I mean, that's basically kind of proving how germs work. I mean, a really fundamental thing for health. And that's about 150 years ago that we figured that one out. Uh, President Garfield was killed by a lack of uh, knowledge of antiseptics. And that was in the late 19th century. Right. It wasn't really until the, the mid 20th century that we had decent working models of either DNA or neurons. And again, the human genome was just sequenced in 2003. So this, we're just kind of getting going. Right. Medicine's so I've seen almost, recently yeah. some like disappointment or uh, negative feelings about, um, you know, what's come of uh, genomics, but it's been 10 years that this information's even been available. We just haven't seen the biggest uh, breakthroughs yet, but um, they're probably coming, I think. I don't think the issue is that genomics doesn't have any answers for us. I think the issue is that uh, it's a giant new technology that we haven't yet mastered. We're just barely starting, Yeah, which is exciting. I mean, again, the, the last 150 years are completely unparalleled in human history in terms of understanding what on earth is going on inside the human body at all. Right. Well, I mean, you know, you got to remember our grandparents' grandparents probably lived to their 40s. Our grandparents probably lived into their 80s or 90s. You know, we have to expect that we'll have at least that long of a lifespan uh, with no changes uh, to what's going on. And so that gives us 50, 60 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm and, about uh, 30. If I imagine that I'll live another 50 years, which uh, no one would call me crazy for wanting to live to 80. Sure. Uh, that would be a lot of potential progress in that time. Yeah, 50 years of progress in medicine. If you think what to where we were 50 years ago, which is what, the 60s? Sure. I mean, it's just stunning. I, I, it's a huge, huge um, amount of change that's happened just in that time. And we can expect at least that much, if not more, right. uh, change that, going forward. That people are going to be living much, much longer than ever before, possibly longer than 100, as the title of Sonia Harrison's book, 100 Plus, implies. And so that's going to have an, a big impact on culture, say, if people live to 150 as, as the new average age of people dying. Right. Uh, that doesn't require defeating death or indefinite lifespans to happen. That's a much more conservative estimate, given the kind of progress that we're making and the fact that each generation does seem to live longer than the previous one, at least in developed countries. Right. Well, and that would just assume that, you know, the kinds of progress we've made just continues to, to get made uh, at a relatively, you know, even rate. And if that were to happen, you'd see all kinds of changes. Uh, obviously, it would have a big impact on uh, work and on how long people work for and on how they retire. Sure. So, yeah, we want to go through a few different areas that this would potentially impact, and work is one of them, right? What would uh, people living to 150 do to work? And obviously, they would retire later, or they might retire later. They might have multiple careers, too. I mean, one thing you have to think about when you think about this is that this is also going to be a world of really rapid technical change, um, just sort of by definition. It's, right. It's going to be the same future. So, uh, there's going to be a lot of turnover in what people are needed uh, to do as jobs, as various things get automated or as the, the scarcities that drive various jobs go away. You would just change yeah, we're like, many times in your life. You would change many times. You'd probably be retraining sort of all the time. 
you know, that could be really different. Um, it could also just mean a lot more people available to work, which would mean a lower price for labor, which is already something we're dealing with now. So that could be something that heightens the glut of, of labor uh, that we currently have. Right. Well, of course, you, we've talked a lot on this podcast about technological unemployment. So people could be working later and later into life, but there might be less jobs available for them. And again, yeah, more people being alive doesn't help that problem necessarily. Uh, so, you know, we don't know what kinds of work will be available in the future, but you might just have a lot of retired people. And, and I assume they'll be doing something with their time, but I have no idea what it is. And it'll probably change right. often. Right. It might be an occupation, but not a, uh, not a job. Right. Well, and actually, I want to jump ahead to another topic on here, mm -hmm. uh, which is how does it affect leadership? Because I think uh, if you think about the baby boomer generation, like let's say, you know, Kurzweil succeeds in defeating death. Mm -hmm. And let's say he takes a lot of the boomer generation with him. Okay. Uh, are they ever going to retire from politics then? Uh, or are we going to be ruled by baby boomers by, until the end of time? By Clinton bots. That's really frightening. Um, they would be so famous. They would have such a superstar advantage, I feel like. They would, have, they would be able to run on experience. But um, I guess, at least for president in this country, we do have term limits, which I think would apply to immortal individuals. Sure. So as long as those remain in place, we'll have guarantee of some turnover. But yeah, I mean, even if it's not the baby boomer generation, if it's the generation after it's them. It's true. I mean, we already value, I think, age and leadership, and this is going to increase that, obviously, because you want somebody with more experience, don't you? I mean, you almost always want the more experienced leader if you have the option. It seems like people would be heavily biased in favor of, of picking that person. Especially if that person can get a genetic treatment that makes them look young. Yeah, if they were healthy. <laughs> and they that had a nice... Is, I think the main thing that young people have going for them in politics right now is that they don't look as old as the more obviously experienced candidates. No, and they would, they would look exactly the age they needed to. Like they might have, right. you know, a distinguished, you know, set of gray hair if or something. If they were like a man, a right. wrinkles might, to might, look like they, might, they have experience, right. but not like still like fit and, you know, not. No, there would definitely be like a style of like, like the age that politicians, you know, test best at that everybody would sort of grow toward. Uh, I mean, that's a really weird idea, but uh, I think, you know, part and parcel of this is we're assuming we're going to, you know, reverse engineer human biology to the point where we can kind of control and set our age at will. But again, we don't have to go that extreme with it. Um, again, if, if a generation is living to 150, it's true. It, they're going to be in power much longer than any generation. As long as they're healthy it. and they can, yeah, and they can still be uh, presentable, they'll, they'll be favored and they'll have the connections and the capital to compete. Which at this point, I almost have to bring up this idea that if we're headed towards uh, indefinite lifespans, then some generation has to be the last generation to die. Yes. And that could be the boomers. It could be us. It could be us, yeah. Uh, it could be it, the generation after us if this is a lot harder problem to solve than we think it is. Sure. But that's interesting, and that's going to be kind of, I don't want to say it's a discontinuity, but it would be like, you know, a pretty fundamental change in human history before and after that generation. Oh, yeah, I know. It would create a lot, I think, of... Um Ajita among the people who survive, as well as um, obviously being devastating for the people who find out too late that they're the last ones to go. And, uh, you know, that's a desperate situation. Who knows what people might do in a situation like that? Uh, well, another issue is, is inequality, right? Let's talk about that because 
access to these treatments, they're, presumably they're going to be expensive. Well, they certainly are going to be in demand. Or expensive at first. So we can assume demand, yes. that they are going to uh, command a price on that side of things. Now, we don't know how cheap they'll be to supply. So I'm going to just assume that they're going to follow the curve that technologies normally follow and that they're going to start expensive and get cheaper over time. But if they never get very cheap, which is possible, if there's some scarce thing that's required for these treatments to work that, you know, uh, limits their cheapness, then they're going to obviously create a huge have-have-not divide where literally the poor will be condemned to death and the rich will live on forever. I mean, that's such a nightmare world. I mean, essentially, we have a divide now where you have, you know, better access to quality food and healthcare among the rich already. Not to understate our divide now, but everybody still gets roughly the same shot at life. Well, because again, our, our because medical our, knowledge our, is our so limited. Our technology is just not that good. It's yeah, not that good. Rich people's technology is expensive and it doesn't buy them that much better outcomes. Yeah. But soon it will get cheaper and it will get much better in the outcomes. And if it doesn't get so cheap that it becomes like a kind of charitable, obvious thing to do to just provide this to you know everyone or nearly everyone, then I could see it driving a lot of inequality. Those uh, uh, David Marusek, he's a science fiction author yeah. uh, who's written a couple books as part of, a, I don't know if it's going to be a trilogy or not. The first one's called Counting Heads, and it's a good read. I'd recommend it. But he has a really dystopian vision of this where... There's these rejuvenation clinics and they're expensive and free health care is provided to the masses and free housing, but no rejuvenation treatments. Right. So you're, they'll take care of you right up until the point of, of extending your life, at which point they won't do that. And that seems like a fuzzy boundary to me. But It does seem like a fuzzy boundary. It sounds like, I mean, it, you know, it works in the book because it's for dramatic effect, but... Sure. Uh, it calls into question, I think, what their technology is because it it's seems not a hard like line between. It seems like they're providing yeah. 20th century technology for free, and then like more recent technology costs money. When the 23rd century or whatever it is, his his book takes place in the far future. I forget which Pretty century. Far, yeah. Uh, when when the contemporary technology of the book is probably going to be so much more efficient at doing everything that the old medicine used to do. Uh, that it could probably render most of it obsolete. I see no reason for them to make that distinction. Uh, it seems like more likely what they'll do is the, give you the cheap technology that keeps you young and uh, keeps you from ever having to have diabetes or whatever we would treat with 20th century Right. It, it goes to the same point that we talked about in our dystopia episode, which is with that level of, of technology... Uh, it's going to probably Elites be... Elites have to be like super sadist to, uh, yeah, to not just help people out. It would be more efficient for them to either take care of us or if they really wanted a genocide of the poor, they could just straight up kill us. They could yeah, do yeah, it a yeah, lot yeah. quicker. Right. Right. Which, you know, that's horrible, but at least that's over quickly. It seems silly that there would be a, <laughs> that there would be a long period of, of torture like that. Uh, but uh, certainly... Uh, a world where people are living longer can be a world of greater inequality. I mean, um, in the Albert Brooks book, right, uh, 2030, uh, which is not even really about life extension, but it's just about uh, a sort of... Well, it's about an age divide. Age divide, right. A, 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 an economic divide that falls along age lines. Which that has to do with, I think, in the next topic maybe we should talk about, which is social services. And this is when you talk about human longevity, this is the most mainstream way I feel like it gets discussed. 
is with regards to public policy. Right. And what are we going to do about Social Security? And what are we going to do about Medicare? The strain on social services is, I think, is a big part of the Albert Brooks 2030 book. And that's yeah. something that people are actually thinking about. But I feel like when they're projecting those strains, they're, they're projecting the increased lifespan, but they're not projecting the accompanying improvements in technology. Right, right. They're that assuming that it's more of a... Down. More of an extension of what's happening now where people are living longer, but at a kind of horrible vegetative state where they're just costing everyone a lot of money. Um, like we're frozen at 2013 uh, medical technology, and, right. but people like keep living longer. Right, which I guess could be a problem if we don't make any new breakthroughs soon, but that's not what I'm expecting. Um, but it does have that issue of the, the young resenting the old because the old have this political power, which they do have. And uh, because they are using it to hoard capital, basically. Um, so you could see that problem getting worse in a world where people are also healthy and, and working longer. So they're not a burden on Social Security necessarily. Probably Social Security gets reworked in a, in a world like this. The ages change or something like that. Yeah. They're just, they have so many advantages because they were working already. They were accruing capital already. And uh, if they need to retrained, they've got those savings to, to fall back on, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you could see inequality uh, getting worse. Or like we've talked about um, before, falling along age lines because right. the older generation has the capital has, and right. that capital is not turning over right. because those people aren't dying. Those people aren't dying, so they're not being forced to either spend their money or give it to their kids or whatever people do when they, when they die. Okay, but let's move off of that to okay. a, another topic that longevity would clearly affect, which yeah. is marriage and family. Right. Well, so already longevity is affecting marriage. I mean, that's pretty clear, I think. Uh, people used to live to 40, and the institution of marriage was designed to you know, help you make kids between the ages of like 12 and 40. And now we have a world where people live to 80, and 50% of marriages end. <laughs> And right, higher so, divorce rates might be caused, at least in part, by uh, there's other factors. Longevity. Obviously, yeah. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but clearly, longevity is having some effect on the institution of marriage. And you can see that if it becomes a cultural meme, if it becomes something that people believe, even if it's not true uh, yet, that we're going to break uh, the escape velocity for longevity uh, in our lifetimes. People might postpone marriage, uh, or they might be more inclined to break their marriages. Or you than might they are now. see, you know, the creation of some in-between measure that's like a, you know, a civil union that has an expiration date and maybe the well, option to might, renew. There might be marriage reform of that kind. That yeah. seems like it'll be a long way before culture's ready for that. I think probably we'll see more people just stepping away from the old definition, you know, the old rituals. I mean, a lot Rather of people than, might just choose not to get married, but uh, to the well, extent that they want, right? Well, people are getting married, you know, a lot older. They're having their first marriage a lot older than they used yeah. to, as well as having a lot of failures of marriages. So I think people are both being more choosy about whom they marry, and they're being more free about leaving a marriage if uh, if they feel like it, which is what I'd expect. I'd expect that marriage becomes more like dating and less like a lifelong commitment. Yeah, over time. I, I think that makes sense. And like, yeah, the, the, but I do think that the that ultimate, in between measure might also appear as an option, or at least be suggested. Well, uh, ultimately, marriages just might morph into something that has an expiration date, or that has, or the divorce is so easy uh, to, to happen, right? That has a you know such a significant 
uh, like sort of standard prenup rider that everybody uses. And just lack of, complete lack of stigma associated. I mean, we were already almost there culturally, but we could even push that further to where it's just like, yeah, we got divorced. It's, you know, no more than... Right. Well, I feel like, I mean, there's already been a cultural shift to where like a divorced woman used to be someone who would be shunned. Now, if you're divorced and you don't have kids, there's like virtually no stigma at all. And I think we're even working toward more acceptance of, uh, you know, single parents. Well, and I think kids, we kind of touched on kids earlier in the sense that like if we were having an overcrowding problem, perhaps people might have less kids. I also could see the, the opposite being true, at least, for example, in my case, like I value my time. So to me, a major reason I might choose to not have kids is to have more time and to not sink 18 years of my life and income into into raising a child. Right. Uh, but if that if I had tons and tons of years to spend, right. well, it's not that big a deal to say spend 18 years Agreed. trying out being a parent, you know? Agreed. Uh, 18 years uh, is a fifth of a hundred years, but it's only a tenth of 200 years. Well, if it's you, a fifth of a hundred years and, it, and it's like know, right there in the middle in the best ones. And the it's best half years. of 40 years yeah. too. So, you know, there was a, a time when child rearing was probably half of your life. And now it's maybe it's a, a quarter or, or a fifth of your life. And, you know, if it becomes less of a commitment, I think for some people it'll become more attractive. I think also people uh, are on a trajectory to have kids later and later in life so you might wait longer uh, to have that first kid, although you might still uh, spend 20 years then uh, at that time. Like if you could be healthy longer, uh, I mean, men already have children a lot later than women do because it's biologically possible for them to do that. It's and, easier to solve that problem uh, biologically, yeah. Yeah. So it seems like as we solve that problem more, uh, more people will choose that as well. So yeah, I think uh, if there's the resources to support it and um, uh, people... Uh, know that they're going to live longer. I think uh, people who want kids will have more of them and people who, you know, maybe want other things in their life or want careers or something will, will put off kids more frequently than they do now. So I don't know how that will actually, how those numbers will all shake out in terms of total kids, but I think everybody will be happier. I think on the whole though, <laughs> it, it seems like we would have on average less kids, but then I don't know. I mean, you know, one of the points that's made uh, in that David Brin book e- existence is that you know the people that have kids are people that are that have kids, and so like they may have lots of kids. So even and, even yeah. when you like remove yeah. all of the biological imperatives completely, the sort of personality type that wants to have kids are the people that are breeding and creating more children that then have that personality type that wants to have kids. So to the a, extent that that personality type is genetic, which I think is actually somewhat questionable. That's true. I mean, I don't know but, to what extent that trait can be passed down, but th- that's just an interesting idea. Like, but certainly people who want kids are going to have a lot of kids, and that might make up that the might fact overwhelm it. That there are people now who don't want kids that much, but probably have them because of this biological imperative. They know they have to have them soon if they're going to have them. And if they can put that off for 100 years, they might make a different decision. Right. But his point was that, you know, we see a leveling off of populations in developed areas, but you could see eventually that just sort of gestating like a new rationale for producing kids. I mean, it might not be a passed on genetic trait. It might just be a cultural meme right, right. that uh, perpetuates itself in exactly this fashion. Well, people like having kids and I don't see any reason to think that uh, we'll stop having them entirely. I think uh, what, what I see for the future is just more choice about when you have a kid 
and more individual control over your, that decision. So another thing I, I put on this list uh, is crime, although I, was, I, I guess I was thinking in my head more about punishment because I wanted to talk about life sentences. Oh, yeah. And also uh, the Do death penalty. Do you keep somebody alive to serve their contiguous or their consecutive life sentences, right? Because we currently have multiple life sentences, which and, is an absurdity in our system. And I think this has to be, you know, no possibility of parole. I think if, if parole is on the table, then eventually we'll probably let that person go after 100 years or so, I well, would imagine. Yeah, possibility of parole is separate, but you can also have consecutive life sentences. That, which is weird, but they'd have to like die and you resuscitate them and then you they serve the new sentence. So that would, that's interesting. Yeah, you could keep them there until they have a natural death, then resuscitate them and keep them there again. This is another awful dystopian idea. Or you could just keep them artificially alive and define a lifetime at, you know, 72 years or something, and then just... I feel like there'd be pressure to reform that at a certain point. Uh, Yeah, my assumption is that, like, a lot of laws, this is um, an absurdity that served the previous technological reality, and it's no longer going to serve the new technological reality, so we'll have to come up with something new. Another thing that's similar to that is contracts. Now, I know... Oh, in uh, perpetuity. That uh, there are a lot of uh, copyright contracts that are in perpetuity throughout the known universe. And I also know that... Um, Isn't uh, copyright uh, start counting after the creator dies? Isn't that how it works now? Isn't like it's 70 years plus the, b- the life, life of, of the, the creator? Author. Yeah. So that's then copyright becomes indefinite, which well, is another side effect of right, this. Right, if the author never dies, then the, then the 70 or however many years no longer matters in a way. Oh, of course, it does matter for Mickey Mouse, though, so... We'll see about what happens there because Walt Disney's irrevocably dead. Well, I guess I shouldn't speak too soon on that either. His head is, I guess, still in like a cryogenic chamber somewhere. Uh, <laughs> like the salt mine in Utah or something. Uh, um, this is one of those weird conspiracy theories that you have. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, I know he was like a crazy cryonics guy. I don't really know where his head is. I have no idea. Um, I'm, but not you, a, I'm not a crackpot. Uh, okay. Um, um, but I would also say the death penalty is an issue because there's such greater possibility for reform if people are living that long it seems again death uh when it does occur in a world of indefinite lifespans becomes even more tragic in a way than it currently is because right right now if i die a sudden death and my presumed you know longevity is say 90 years then that's 60 years i've lost because i'm about 30 now but if my presumed longevity is 200 years think of all those productive years i've lost now right well and so that makes murder a more heinous crime and capital punishment might be less palatable as well and it also makes capital punishment less palatable possibly but uh emotions run high with murder well, it also there's a question of whether the murder is reversible, right? Because the increased healthcare that we're talking about, we're assuming this means you know it can keep a healthy-ish body alive and keep and stave off disease. But the the more radical idea is that uh, you could revive recently deceased bodies. And of course, I mean you know we do a little bit of this now. People die for a few minutes on the table and we shock them back to a pulse. Sure. So it's not again, it's a blurry line. I think you know uh, it's not going to go. All the way to like, you got hit by a bus and your body's destroyed and we're like, you know, (laughs) restoring you from backups or whatever. We don't need to go that far. Uh, We don't have to go that far to think about just, you know, uh, somebody shoots you and uh, the wound is uh, fatal and you're going to bleed out, but it's the future and we have better technology. Maybe we can save that person. So uh, maybe murder becomes a less committable offense. It's just, it's harder to do. 
Um, yes, I, I would. I to could the point where, happening. okay, it does happen sometimes. It's still possibly to, to you know possible to crush somebody or something. But it might change who's convicted of murder. It might change the amount of certainty that we have about murders that happen. And it might change our opinions about what to do with those people who commit those crimes. Well, and then what about uh, life insurance is another thing I wanted to bring up. Buying a, a life insurance policy uh, would be pretty heavily affected by this. So uh, life insurance is a strange thing because it's... It would be a bad idea to, to get a life insurance policy, maybe. Although, again, we're, we're talking about indefinite lifespan, assuming that you have treatments and like we're, accidental deaths, like you said, like getting hit by a bus and having your body destroyed. Would actually be much more valuable because, again, you're losing a lot more time of income or... True. So, you know, to the extent that life insurance is mostly something that heads of household do to protect their dependents in case of untimely death, It would still right? make sense because of accidents. It would still make a certain amount of sense, and it might be uh, less of a good deal, but it might pay out better, basically, than it is now. Uh, but life insurance, I could see possibly morphing uh, and combining with what we now call health insurance into something that we might call, like, wellness insurance, that is not so much about insuring your dependents in case of your demise, but is, in, is actually an insurance that you buy to help pay for your life extending treatments when you need them. Because these things might be incredibly expensive. Uh, and it's reasonable to assume that the best, most cutting edge technologies are always going to be expensive, even if less good technologies start working well enough. Um, well, and if the model is that the body is still complete, like continuously breaking down and accumulating cellular damage, and you need is, you're going to literally need healthcare forever, right? It's like having a care plan for your car. Or it's like something. having a care plan for uh, any product that you yeah, own, yeah. except it's for your body. So, and I mean, health insurance is kind of that now, but the way that health insurance works now, obviously, they can't extend your life uh, in that way. So those things might merge and you might buy a kind of wellness insurance that covers your routine medical costs, but also covers any catastrophic life restoration that they need to do and has, you know, uh, some cost to you uh, up front and some cost to you when you get service in the way that, you know, insurance normally works now, uh, but socializes some of that cost uh, because you never know who's going to get hit by a bus or whatever. Uh, but you would know that everyone would need this longevity treatment eventually if they live long enough. So th there would be some costs that everyone would have to would have to pay. Another interesting topic to think about is what mm -hmm. happens to religion because obviously uh, religion is one of the main ways that people rationalize death. Right, and, it's one of the main transmitter of these cultural ideas that death is good or that death is okay because that there's it's a good, okay because there's an afterlife right is is one of the main ways that right. that religion kind of justifies and rationalizes death so if death uh starts to become challenged and again i think as these technologies get better and as lifespans get longer but well before the point that we actually are defeating death we're going to have you know cultural conversations about this topic and I imagine it's going to be potentially threatening to a lot of current religions, the way that they're set up. Now, I'm sure that they can find a way to adapt. Uh, well, yeah, whether it should be threatening to them and whether they'll find it threatening are two separate things. But I think we can show from the current like evolution debate, for example, that some of them will find a way to be threatened. Some of them will find a way to be threatened. <laughs> I think that's pretty sure. And they might even make the case that we shouldn't extend lifespans. Uh, yeah, because how else will we get to heaven? Yes, that would be one. For example, one. I mean, I'm not argument. saying they're going to say that, but I could see somebody make that argument, and um, that would be a terrible tragedy if that person convinced um, 
people to die unnecessarily. So that's something that's really interesting. Uh, one person who's actually looked into this a little bit, right, is Sonia Arison sure. herself. Uh, in her book, uh, 100 Plus, which we haven't talked that much about, actually, um, one of the things she looks into is uh, she, of course, had the assumption that I would have had, that I think a lot of listeners would have had, that as you live longer and have more access to education and society basically progresses in every way that religious fervor would die down. Yes, but, but no. <laughs> in her research, she found that that's not what happened. Yes. And it was kind of compelling uh, what she found, which was that people found themselves more spiritually connected. Did she pose a theory for why that's the case? Uh, yeah, she talked about why it was, and now I'm forgetting, so I'm going to... I'm going to look it up. Well, while you're looking that up, I can imagine that one reason might be is that, you know, to the extent that religion's providing rationalizations for death uh, as one of its services, when you take away death, then you don't need religion for that particular service. But to the extent that religion's providing meaning and purpose to your life, uh, the longer you live, almost the more help you need with that, I would think. And again, if you're talking about living uh, better and, and getting further and further away from your core survival needs... You know, you have more time to to do philosophy and think about big issues, and that's right. where religion kind of tends to step in. Right. Well, and the the results that she found, uh, this is a post from her uh, that I'm reading off of, is that uh, the the big thing that religion does is actually not about the afterlife. It's understanding the purpose of what happens here. Purpose, yeah. And and you know, we talked about autonomy, mastery, and purpose the other day of being drives that that people uh, get from various places in their lives, and 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 obviously, purpose traditionally has often been the source of that has been religion for people. Yes. So when people have questions like, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What's good and what's bad? How should I live my life? Uh, these are all quotes I'm pulling off of this uh, Sonierson quote. Those questions are, in many people's mind, best addressed by religion. And I don't think that's going to change. I think uh, as people live longer, uh, they're going to have more questions about how time to, to ask them. Yeah. moral a moral life and, and how to uh, be good and and just to sort of ask what's it all for. Uh, and they might find uh, religious answers to be quite comforting. I think we might see some new religions emerge in the world. And this is something that's been happening, obviously, slowly for all of human history. But I think we might see some upheaval because I do think religions that don't deal with the afterlife very directly will be more palatable in a future where most people aren't worried about the afterlife. Right, you want more religions um, that provide you guidance in the here and now when you're less immediately concerned about death. Although, again, if we still have these accidental deaths that we alluded to earlier... I'm not saying they can't you mention... You have to rationalize that. Sure. You know, the, you'll still... I mean, that's the thing is, too, if you keep rolling the dice and you live long enough and we don't make enough other improvements to the things that might cause accidents, then, you, you know, we're all going to still know people that have their lives terminated, unfortunately... Sure, and sure. That's going to need you on know, a long enough horizon, time horizon. Yeah, right. We all die eventually. I mean, there's the heat death of the universe, so there's there's an endpoint for everything. But we might need to refocus our religious thinking on how to be good livers versus um, what happens after. If that becomes less of a day to day concern for people, I'm not saying they won't mention heaven or won't mention these concepts uh, at all. Uh, I, I suspect there'll be just versions of the religions we have now that de-emphasize them and, and emphasize more the rituals and the rules and the practices of living. But yeah, I imagine they'll definitely adapt in that way. So anyways, we're running out of things to talk about. The lo very last thing I had on my list was, was art, which I don't know how much it would be affected or even how interesting this is to think about. But I guess, you know, death is 
a topic of art and has historically always been a major topic of art. Right. Well, it certainly could rob artists of a key anxiety that they currently use to interest their audiences. You know, what people often say when you say, why don't we defeat death? People who are uncomfortable with that idea might feel that old argument that death brings meaning to your life. And of course, death brings uh, meaning to a lot of art or, or inspires right, I was a lot gonna of say, art. I'm not sure yeah. if death brings meaning to life, but it does bring meaning to a lot of novels. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that might go away. Although I kind of wonder if it will, because I, I think as creatures with a human heritage, even if we are pretty far from personal worries of death, I think we'll still have anxiety about non-existence. We'll just have even more period pieces like we talked about before. Right, right. So maybe in order to have a realistic murder mystery, you'll have to now set it in the past because murder is so unlikely in this future. But I think people will still be anxious enough about death in a psychological sense to enjoy stories about death. But yeah, you may see it being less of a go-to sort of um, drama creator uh, than it is now if it's less in people's experience. Okay. Well, so we've uh, gone through a lot of different potential cultural impacts of of not just indefinite lifespans, because we are also just talking about increased longevity. Uh, We're trying to encompass a range from the somewhat more conservative adding to the lifespan to be beyond 100, right up to Right up uh, to the, the... Practical immortality. Right. The yeah. functional immortality of longevity escape velocity being reached and you know, not literally no one dying, but no one dying of natural causes. And my, my personal belief is that uh, we're definitely going to see these coming generations living longer. And I, I do think maybe some of these effects we talked about will occur. We'll just have to see. Yeah. No, I think we'll definitely see the weak version of this. The strong version is harder to tell. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how culture responds to people getting older and also living better lives for longer. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.